So before we get started, I need to acknowledge that today is Mother's Day, and if you don't know that, shame on you, <laughs> right? Literally, none of us would be here if it was not for our mothers, amen? And so there's no better way for us to honor our mothers than to praise God for them. Right? There are many, many, many of us in here today because our mothers faithfully prayed for us and taught us about Jesus Christ, and we serve the church and we serve the Lord because of our mothers' prayers and the things that they led us to in that way. And also, there are some of us in here today only because your mother asked you to come to church today, right? And if that was your mother, your mother is a wise woman. Your mother is a very wise woman. She shrewdly leveraged your love for her to invite you to hear about the only God that can save you, right? She knows that her faith cannot save you. She knows that your love for her cannot save you. She knows that Christ and Christ alone is the only one that's able to save you. And God was good to you in giving you that woman as a mother because your mother used her day today, Mother's Day, to lead you to an opportunity to hear about the salvation of your soul. And if you're here today only because your mother invited you, Understand, that's not by accident. God in heaven, in his kindness, in his mercy to you, orchestrated that she would do that for the good of your soul and your salvation. You should praise God for that also. But you need to listen, repent, and believe in the gospel because Christ is your only hope. Ask your mother. I'm sure she'll tell you. So I want to encourage all of us today to honor our mothers or your wife, if she's a mother or your grandmother or whoever. But even more important than that, I encourage you to praise God for her and thank him. Amen. Amen. So as you heard, Pastor Vladimir, our sermon text this morning is 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 8 through 11. Pastor and theologian Bishop E.M. Romero, last week he blessed us mightily. It's a joke. It's Pastor Ed. Okay. He blessed us mightily. He reminded us that we must live as people who have been saved and suffer as people who will be saved. He showed us that as believers, sin is no longer something that we walk in or identify with. We must see ourselves the way we really are. You are new creations, born again, transformed, redeemed, reconciled, set apart, made holy by God. That's who you are if you are a believer, right? And he encouraged us, and he said that we must stop doing the things that we used to do because that's not what you do when you're in this family. That's what he told us last week. So no more living in sensuality. No more living for your passions. No more drunkenness and things like that because that's not who you are. And so this week's message or this week's passage is an addendum to Bishop Romero's sermon last week. Okay? Last week we were reminded, you're saved. Stop doing that. You're saved. Stop doing that. This week's message is calling us to action. You're saved. Now do this. All right? So let's go to the Lord and ask him to help us. Lord, we need you to speak to us, oh God. Lord, I need you to help me to rightly divide your word for your glory. Your people need to hear from you, not me, oh God. Some of your people are here today, they are full of doubt. Some of them are rebellious and stiff-necked. Some of them are full of joy, but all of them need you, God. Some of the people that are here today don't know you at all. They need to hear from you also. So, God, we ask you to help us all by the aid of your spirit to hear your word, to believe all that you say, 
Lord, we pray that your word would shape us and cause our affections to grow for you. God, I pray that you would deliver us from wandering minds and cold, detached hearts. Lord, we need you. Speak to us, O oh God. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Family, let me tell you this plain truth. Suffering in this life is inevitable. You are going to suffer. The winds of hardship, hurdles, and heartache are going to blow fiercely against you. Satan is a roaring lion who seeks to devour you with deceit, with damnation, and deceitful desires. The world, with all of its ungodly philosophies, will constantly assault you and try to draw you away from God's truth. And there will be times in your life when it seems like everything and everybody is against you. Make no mistake, family. If you're going to live in this world, you will suffer. But family, God Almighty knows this. He knows that his people are going to suffer in this world. And it's for this reason that the Holy Spirit in his infinite wisdom inspired the Apostle Peter to pen a letter of love and encouragement to his beloved bride, the church. In this letter of 1 Peter, the Lord provides his people with invaluable instruction on how to live in this world in which you will suffer, it will be hostile, and oppose you because you trust Christ. Right? Further still, in this specific verse, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 8 through 11, is more important than ever in our culture because our culture celebrates and promotes individualism and self-sufficiency. And that makes it extremely difficult for Christians to fully embrace the necessity of love, hospitality, and service among one another who will suffer as well. So the world that we live in make it hard for us to believe that we need to do this because everybody think everybody about they self, right? Family, as suffering people who have been saved, we must love one another earnestly. We must be hospitable to one another without grumbling, and we must serve one another for the glory of God. If you don't, you won't be able to endure. Amen? So if you're following along in the handout, if you have a handout, I thought I had a handout. I don't have one. Listen, it's three points on this sermon. We must love one another, one another earnestly. We must be hospitable to one another without grumbling. And we must serve one another for the glory of God. All right? So look with me in verse 8. Verse 8. Our Lord plainly says to us, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sin. So here in this passage, what we have, it's a clear command. You literally have to do Bible origami to not understand what it's saying. Okay? It's a clear command. It's a description of how this command is to be obeyed. And then it's a reason for obedience to the command. Right? So the command is keep loving one another. The command to keep loving one another must be done earnestly. And the reason for obedience is that love covers a multitude of sins. So, love covers a multitude of sins. So, when you, when you survey the various translations of this text, so if you were to open up a Bible and look at different translations of this same text, what you will see, you'll see a bunch of different variations. Now, that's not something that proves that we got a bunch of bad Bible translations. All of that proves is that the ex all this existence of these varied translations, all they prove is it's just a testimony to the depth, to the richness, and to the complexity of the command that's been given to us. That's all that proves, right? And it speaks to the challenge of fully capturing the meaning of what it means for Christians to love one another. Right? So the original word here in 1 Peter 4, 8 is agape, which again is translated love. 
However, agape has this broad and complex meaning in the original language, which includes concepts of sacrifice, selflessness, and unconditional love. Furthermore, the Holy Spirit inspires Peter to not simply give us commands to love one another, but the way he writes the text, he's telling us how we must love one another. So again, the Word of God is not merely telling you, love your brother, love your sister. It explicitly states when, how, how long, and why Christians should love one another. So for us to obey this, to obey this command, we must go beyond mere obedience. You can't just check a box and say, I love my brother because I gave him a sandwich. No, you can't do that. Okay? Because this command demands a particular disposition. It demands a particular disposition towards one another. This command sets and determines the priority. Sets and determines the priority. And this command decides when you can stop. I'm going to say it again. This command demands a particular disposition from you. This command sets and decides the priority for its obedience, and this command decides the end date. Okay? So when Peter says, above all, what he's doing here is he's setting a priority of love. Family, we are supposed to put love in one another, and by one another, he specifically means Christians in the church. Okay? He's the one another here is Christians in the church. He's talking to believers loving one another. So when Peter is saying here, above all, he's telling Christians that we should be putting loving one another before and above everything else. Before and above everything else. Our love for our brothers and sisters in the faith is supposed to be a primary obligation for us. A primary obligation for us. Galatians chapter 6 verse 10 says, we're supposed to be good to everybody, but especially to those who are of the household of faith. Right? As a matter of fact, this text, uh, 1 Peter 4, 8, in the New Living Translation, translates it like this. It says that our love towards one another is to be most important of all. Most important of all. Also, when Peter says that we should keep loving one another, the word of God is deciding the end date. So this is just basic English. I'm not going to get to the big grammar lesson with you, but every time you put an I-N-G at the end of something, you can't just do it one time. Right? He said to keep loving one another. Right? Our love for each other is supposed to be constant. There is no end date. There is no expiration date. There is no cutoff time. You don't get to quit. You don't get to stop. You don't get to retire. And you don't get to take a vacation from loving your brothers and sisters in the faith. Our love for one another must be ongoing, endless, and continual. Then Peter goes on to say that we must love one another earnestly. We must love one another earnestly. I'm still on the first subsection of this text. I'm just going to warn you, I'm going to be here for a long time. It's going to be the biggest, the longest part because we got to lay the foundation down, right? So when he says that we must love one another earnestly, this dictates our disposition, our disposition, right? The word Peter uses here in some Bibles is translated deeply. Some Bibles translated fervently. Some Bibles translated intense or with eagerness. So it can also describe an attitude of perseverance, and it's sometimes translated, like I said, earnestly or with devotion and zealously. Simply put, Peter is saying that our love for one another, it must be real, and it must be from the heart. Okay? It must be real. It must be from the heart. It must be passionate, enthusiastic, deep, and abiding, our love for one another is not just mere duty. It's not just mere duty, but actual affection. 
affection coupled together with action, right? Our love for one another must include the hands and the heart, the hands and the heart. The way that we are supposed to love one another in the Christian faith, in the Christian church, is supposed to be a love that is strongly felt, married together with you doing something, right? If you serve one another but don't have affection for one another, you didn't obey the command. If you got a bunch of affection for somebody and you don't do nothing for them, you didn't obey the command. Right? Something else that's really interesting about this word earnestly here, the, um, the word that Peter uses, the root of this word literally means stretched. It means stretched, like stretch. Right? So in a sense, it's fitting. It's fitting that he uses that word because Christian love is going to be pulled and exerted and strained and tested to the limits. Edmund Clowney made this comment about Christian love. He says, God's love stretches our love. We love first because he loved us. Our love is kindled by God's love, and it's stretched by exercise. If love collapse at the first test, it is not worthy to be called love, unquote. And the reason why we have to love each other this way, the reason why this is absolutely in, is critical and imperative is found in verse 8. Look back at verse 8. It says, since love covers a multitude of sin. Since love covers a multitude of sin. So the word choice that Peter here, he uses, that word could be since or because. And what he's telling you is he's giving you the reason why you got to love each other like this. He's telling you the reason why you got to love each other like this. And he's assuming something. If you're in a Christian church, it's going to be a whole lot of sin for you to forgive. That's the assumption. Watch, I'll prove it to you. Look, listen to this. So, you got questions, right? What does the Bible mean when it says love covers sin, right? What does the Bible mean when it says love covers sin? So, there's some debate about the exact meaning of this phrase in this text. But, and the reason why it's a debate is because we know for certain that the blood of Jesus alone is what covers our sin, right? But that's talking about covering our sin by way of atonement and forgiveness before God. So what Peter is most likely talking about right here is he's talking about it like, you should think about it like this, that love takes the oxygen out of sin the way a wet blanket suffocates a fire, okay? So if it's oxygen present in a fire, it'll burn in rage. But if you take the, way, uh, the air, the blaze will stop, right? So in the same way, when we deprive sin and offense, the, ab the ability to thrive in the congregation among us, the only way we can do that is by suffocating it with love. Right? Just like a forest fire can be tamed by cutting off the supply, cutting off the air supply, we can cut off offense, division, and strife, and it can all be stifled and suffocated by love and forgiveness. Amen, church? So, covered sin is forgiven sin. Covered sin is forgiven sin. That's Hebrews 10:12. The Bible says that hatred stirs up strife. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses, right? So hatred, what hatred does is hatred look for conflict. Hatred go looking for the smoke, right? Hatred seeks out reasons to be offended. Hatred looks under every crack and crevice to be insulted. Hatred reads emotions into text messages that's probably not there right? Hatred goes looking to get somebody a piece of their mind every time they get offended, right? And so your desire to get somebody a piece of your mind when you defend it says more about your desire to unearth strife than it does about your desire to cover sin. Amen? Hatred makes you assume that your brother and your sister don't like you because of some look that they gave you in the church lobby. 
They could have just ate something bad last night. But love would rather assume the best and believe the best about a situation and a person. Love has a predetermination to forgive. A predetermination to forgive those who have wronged us and will wrong us. You understand that? It's not just that you say, okay, you sinned against me and I'm going to forgive you. You actually walk in the building and you say, when Jose sins against me, I've already made a resolve in my mind that I'm going to forgive him because I got a Savior who died on the cross and rose and forgave me of all the sins that I committed past, present, and the ones that I have not committed yet. Look again at verse 8. Look again at verse 8. It says that love covers a multitude of sins. Now that word means a crowd, a host, or abundance. That just means a lot. Right? A lot of sin. It's a lot of sin. So in other words, what Peter is saying here is, look, you have to love one another earnestly because these people are going to sin against you a lot. Right? Family, every local church is a society of sinners redeemed by grace. Every, every local church is a society of sinners redeemed by grace. And as sinners, we are going to sin against each other. We are going to offend each other. And some of us are going to get offended about stuff that we shouldn't. And if we have any hope of enduring in this world, if we have any hope of enduring the suffering that Jesus promised you was coming, we have to love one another earnestly. We got to be ready and quick to forgive one another and love one another because everybody in this room is going to sin against you if you give them ample opportunity. Again, I need, to state, I need to explain this to you. Peter is not suggesting that we sweep every sin under the rug or that we, in the name of love, allow people to sinfully and spitefully use us and run over us. That's not what he's saying. No. He is saying that when love is the priority, you won't be easily hurt or offended. You will not have this heightened sensitivity to possible offenses, right? You won't build up hard feelings. You will not harbor bitterness. You will not desire revenge and retribution. You will not spread conflict and gossip and division. But on the contrary, you'll be patient and kind. You won't insist on your own way. You won't be irritable. You won't be resentful. But you will bear all things. You will believe all things. You will hope all things. And you will endure all things for the glory of God. Our love for one another has to be like Christ's love for us. Listen to me. He died for the sins that you haven't committed yet. He died for the sins that you haven't committed yet. Listen, I understand. There are some people who are difficult to love. I get it. But learning to love difficult people begins with understanding that you and I are difficult to love too. So I know what you're thinking. Pastor Corey, you're not difficult to love at all. But that's not true. Ask my wife. You and I may not be difficult to love in the same way as others and may not cause the same kind of damage as the person sitting next to you, but nevertheless, in your own very special, unique, snowflake type of way, you are just a, as difficult to love as anybody else. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all gone astray. And it took the sacrifice of Je the Son of God on the cross to make you a part of this family. And he didn't do it because you was going to be a wonderful addition to this family. Okay? He did it in spite of what you are like, in spite of the sins you're going to struggle with, 
and in spite of the havoc you're going to wreak when you join this church. Now, the, I'm, I'm kind of speaking for the pastors right now, sort of. Okay? Now, we love it when people get baptized and join the church and they become members with us, but at the same time, in the back of our head, we know we got a whole bunch of problems we're going to have to deal with. Why? Because you're a sinner. I got somebody I got to counsel now. Not that I'm saying I got a problem with it. I'm just saying it's just a matter of fact. You coming with baggage. You not that wonderful. And if you do not think that you are difficult to love, you're probably self-righteous, which makes you especially difficult to love. But there's grace even for the Pharisee. Amen? Jesus died for the self-righteous. Jesus died for the prideful. Jesus died for the self-righteous and prideful Laker fans. He died for all of y'all. He died for all of y'all. And me too. And yes, I know. I'm sorry. I'm a, I'm a Golden State Warrior fan. I'm sorry. Listen. And yes, it's true that a disciple of Christ it's supposed to love everybody, even an enemy. But Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, focuses his attention on this verse to our love that we have for one another in the church. Okay? That's the focus here. And the love he commands us to have for one another, or the love we're supposed to love one another with, must be a priority. It must be above everything else. It must be marked with compassion and care and persistent effort. It must be constant. It must be ongoing. It must be reliable, inexhaustible, and without end, and fervent, and intense, and deep. Our love for one another can never be half-hearted, never be weak, never be selfish, never be self-serving. It has to be concentrated and focused and faithful. It should stretch us. It should compel us. It should motivate us. And our love for one another must be quick to forgive, slow to take offense, and do it for the glory of your Savior, Jesus Christ, and for no other reason. Amen? And we cannot forget about the context of this verse here, family. These believers in this letter, that this letter was written to, were facing persecution. Not like, no, no, I mean like real persecution. Not like your friend at work don't want to eat lunch with you. But like real persecution. Okay, real persecution. And attacks from outside of the church. Right? So we know from chapter 3 that some of these people were oppressed by an unjust government. Some of these people had unjust masters. Some of these believers were married to unbelieving spouses, unbelieving husbands, and family. Given all of these circumstances and all of this suffering that these people were facing, there is no chance of these people enduring if they are not going to be loved deeply by the people in the church. If I'm out here in this world fighting sin my whole life and I got to come in here and y'all don't love me, I'm not going to make it. I am not going to make it. So we have to love each other deeply and genuinely, earnestly. So his command to keep loving one another, it's not a suggestion. It is absolutely not a suggestion. I said this in the Bible study on Wednesday, I'm going to repeat it again. Somebody gave me a book that said um, how to love Jesus when you don't love the church. It was 300 and 250 pages long. It's 249 pages too long. It should have been one page. Repent and believe the gospel. You can't love Jesus and not love his bride. That ain't biblical. It's a command with specific instructions on what to do, who to love, and how to love them. It must be sacrificial and selfish. It must be above everything else. Everything else. It has to be your type priority. It's got to be ongoing. It's got to be constant. It's got to be passionate. It's got to be deeply felt. It's got to be affectionate. And you must resolve to forgive one another before you gather. If you don't, we're not going to endure the inevitable suffering that's going to come for us, family. It's coming. If you have not suffered in this life, you just keep waking up every day. Life is coming to punch you in the throat, okay? And so we have to love one another earnestly. Not only are we supposed to love one another earnestly, we're supposed to also be hospitable to one another without grumbling 
for the glory of God. That's point number two. If you're following along on a handout, point number two. We must love one another. I'm sorry, we must be hospitable to one another for the glory of God and do it without grumbling. So, you guys ask, always ask the best questions, right? What is hospitality, you asking? What is hospitality? So in this passage, hospitality is a combination of, it's a, com, it's a, it's a, it's a compound word. It's a combination of two words. It's the, the Greek word for brotherly love, or philo, the, the root word philo, where we get brotherly love from, and then this word for strangers or foreigners, okay? And it means to be fond of or have love for strangers or guests, right? To treat guests and strangers with love and compassion and generosity. It may mean extending this love and compassion and generosity to fellow believers that you know personally, but it also might mean extending love and generosity to believers that you don't know personally. So the one another here in this text is talking about Christians, right? So you, that means like loving the people here that's at 1941 Spring Mountain Road. Do I got the right address? 1941? 19, I, it's somewhere up on Spring Mountain, <laughs> right? Loving this particular con- local congregation, but it also might mean loving those brothers and sisters in the faith that you have not ever met before. So we got an example of this in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 when Paul commends the church in Macedonia for out of their poverty giving to the church that was being persecuted in Jerusalem. So listen, they don't have the internet and Facebook and, and, and they wasn't tweeting each other like we in trouble. They never met them. Right? They never met them. They just heard our brothers in Jerusalem need help. How can we help? You understand? That's the idea that he's trying to get across here. So it means love or showing love and welcoming those who are a part of the body of Christ. And that might mean local people, but it also might mean people who are not necessarily members of this church. And in a sense, might be strangers to us. So hospitality is more than just giving somebody a warm bed and a good meal to eat. Right? Because remember, love is supposed to be affection and action wedded together. Amen? So, hospitality is an expression of our love for one another. It's an attitude of the heart that shows a willingness to serve and to welcome other people into your house. So Peter, he could have simply just said, be hospitable to one another and leave it at that. But he didn't do that. What he did was he qualified the command. Look back at verse 9. He says to love one another and do it without grumbling. Okay? Without grumbling. So why does he make this qualifying statement? Why does he ask, or why does he say to do it without grumbling? He says this because hospitality is demanding hospitality or being hospitable to one another is costly. It's going to affect your budget. It's going to affect your schedule. It's going to stretch you physically and emotionally. Your nice furniture and your fixtures are possibly going to get broken or damaged. The walls are going to get damaged. Somebody, little kid, going to pee on your couch. All of this stuff is going to happen, right? And the temptation is going to be to grumble and complain. That temptation is going to be massive, right? But if you remember that our love for one another is supposed to be an earnest love from the heart that reflects the love of Jesus Christ, right? That it's not simply that we're supposed to open up our homes, but we're supposed to open up our homes with affection towards one another, with a disposition that's ready to forgive when they tear your stuff up. What did you think Jesus was getting when he saved you and invited you into his house? Did you think he was going to be like, I'm inviting Doug in here because Doug is going to beautify everything? No. That's not what he thought. He said, I'm going to invite, I'm sorry, Doug. I'm going to invite Doug in here and Doug's going to tear this place up. 
That's what he did for every one of us. So, and these one another's that we're supposed to love and, 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 and share our house with, these people, our brothers and sisters in the faith, they are far more valuable and more important than, the, than your stuff. Okay? So, for this reason, true hospitality is more concerned with people than it is with the stuff in your house. It's more concerned with people than it is than it is concerned with the stuff in your house. So when it comes to hospitality, there is no need to impress other people with your beautiful decorations and your wonderful cooking. Hospitality seeks to serve people and says, this home is a gift from my master and I'll use it the way that he desires. Hospitality will never put stuff in front of people. Hospitality will never say nothing like this. As soon as I get the house decorated and finished, and then I can start inviting people over here. Nope, hospitality don't say nothing like that. Hospitality will say, it, you, hey, you welcome to come over. It's no furniture, but we can sit on the floor and eat. Right? Hospitality will never say, when the decorating is done, you can come. Hospitality doesn't say that. Hospitality can say, you can come. Right now, hospitality will say, this house is a mess, but you family, you can come over. Hospitality never says, never, never, never says that this is my house. This is an expression of my wonderful personality and decorating skills. Look at it and admire my greatness. (laughs) Hospitality don't say that. Hospitality says, what's mine is yours. Okay? So I got, a, I got a baby brother that some of y'all met, some of y'all didn't. Helped you try to illustrate this point for you. When he was about four years old, we went to the ice cream truck. I'm his big brother, so I gave him a dollar. He bought, now, it's 86, so a dollar is like $10,000 now, right? <laughs> so he buys, he buys some candy, some lemon heads, Alexander the Great, you know. And then my little sister comes out and says, hey, can I get some of those? And he says, you got to get your own. And I'm like, bro, I just gave you all of that money. Give your sister some of that. No, 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 I'm not, I'm not giving him this. I'm not giving her this. She got to get her own. That's what you do. That's what you do when you don't be hospitable to people, to your brothers and sisters in the faith. That's you. Don't be like him. He was four. It was cute when you was four. Right? Don't be like that. So when we show hospitality to our brothers and our sisters in the faith, all we're simply doing is serving and loving our elder brother's bride in our father's house at our father's table. That's all you're doing. None of that stuff is yours. Where do you think you got that stuff from? Where did you get the power to get wealth from? Who did all of that? God did that. All of that stuff he gave to you to be a steward for his glory. That's all. Everything you got belonged to him. So, I'm under no false pretenses. This is not easy. Hospitality is not easy. Okay? So, where are you going to get the strength from and the conviction to be hospitable to one another? I already promised you they're going to sin against you. So where are you going to get the strength and the motivation to give your time and your energy and your resources to welcome other people and possibly strangers into your house and into your life? Well, I'll tell you, there was a man who for the joy set before him endured the suffering of the cross for strangers. And he did not come down off that tree till all of those strangers' sins was paid. You and I were once strangers to God. Lost without hope in the world. Alienated from God, the Bible says. Strangers to the commonwealth of Israel. But the father sacrificed his own son to bring you into his home. To bring you into his family. And to secure a seat for you at his table. What other motivation do you need? What else do you need? 
everything you have belong to him anyway. So our love for one another is expressed through this hospitality to one another. And we have to do it while resisting the temptation to grumble. The other command that we see here that flows from our love for one another is that we must serve one another. That's the third point. We must serve one another, and we must do it for the glory of God. Look at your Bibles. We're back in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 through 11. And this passage says without qualification that every believer has been given a gift from God, and we must use it to serve one another. We read in verse 10. Verse 10, the Bible says this. Your Lord says this to you. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Listen, the Bible is the word of God. And it's very clear at some points. This is one of them, right? You've been given a gift. You have been given a gift. And you have been commanded by your Lord and Savior to use it to serve other Christians. Your service to other Christians, your hospitality to other Christians is an expression of your love for one another and it's for the glory of God. So, because this is so clear, that means something, right? And according to the word of God, that means that I could tell what's going on in your heart. So I know some of us don't believe that you could tell what's going on in another person's heart, but that ain't true. I beg to differ. Your service is an expression of your love for the bride of Christ, okay? And therefore, your lack of service is an expression of your lack of love for the bride of Christ. You understand? The Bible is clear. Every one of us has been given a gift, given to you by God for you to steward for the glory of God and his bride. And you must serve one another. And by one another, I specifically mean the body of Christ, the local church, other Christians. Okay? This is not an option, family. If you either serve one another, be hospitable to one another, and love one another, or you are in rebellion to your king. Okay? So, I know you got more questions, because you always got questions, right? The first question you're asking is this. Well, pastor, the text says, as each one received a gift, use it to serve one another. And since I don't know what my gift is, doesn't that mean that I don't have to serve? Great question. No. <laughs> Look back at verse 11. Look back at verse 11. The passage, what it does here, it outlines all gifts into two broad categories, right? Gifts are oriented around speaking and gifts that are oriented around service. Look at what it says here. It says, whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves with the strength that God supplies. So in order to discover what your gift is, all you got to do is ask one question. Am I fundamentally a speaker of words or a doer of deeds? That's it. And then run hard in that direction. You'll figure it out. Amen? So, and then, if you look at the list of gifts, so this, this specific Bible passage doesn't list out the gifts, right? But there are other passages of scriptures that do. I don't have time to get into them because I'm on the time limit. But listen, 
if you go through these lists of gifts in the Bible, they are very diverse. Nevertheless, they can all be classified in one of these two areas, right? Serving or speaking oriented. Okay, so for example, you got apostleship, discernment, encouragement, evangelism, knowledge, prophecy, wisdom, teaching. These are all gifts, and they're all speaking oriented. And then there are gifts like administration, giving, hospitality, mercy, service. These are deeds or service-oriented gifts. And also, if you take some time, which I don't have at the moment, okay, and look at all these scriptures, most of them are qualities that you got to have anyway. You understand what I'm saying? You're required to do... Tell me where in the Bible... You can get the idea, or you get the idea, that you don't have to be wise. So the Bible lists wisdom as a gift, but that don't mean you can't be wise, does it? You're required to have wisdom as a Christian, right? Okay? Discernment is called a gift. Amen? But again, the Bible demands that everyone should test everything and hold fast to what is true. That's just discernment. you got to do that regardless. Evangelism is called a gift, but every one of us should be able to give a reason for the hope that lies within us. Faith is called a gift, but every one of us got to have faith in Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 12, there's a list of gifts, and it says serving, teaching, encouragement, giving, and mercy are all gifts. We all been commanded to serve. I just read it to you. We all have a responsibility to teach to some degree. You have to raise your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. You got to teach people the gospel. You got to train them to be disciples. That requires a certain level of teaching. We all call to encourage one another. We're all ordered to be generous in giving. And who among us can say that you're not supposed to be merciful? Who could say that? So in a real sense, Here's what we can conclude, that a gift is simply something that a person has a higher capacity for than other people. It's just something that you have a higher capacity for than other people. You're not like some commando G.I. Joe Navy SEAL. That's not what that means. That just means you're just a little bit better at something that we all got to do. You understand? So if you think about this for a minute, right, it's, it, it delineates these two it delineates the gifts into two categories, service and speaking. Well, what's the height of that? Deacons and pastors. If you remember, in, in the one of the qualifications of a pastor is hospitality, right? And if you go and you look at all of the qualifications, ethical qualifications for a pastor and a deacon, that's just a mature Christian man who can preach. That's all that is. Go read all the requirements for a deacon and an elder and tell me that that's not the man you want your daughter to marry. That's all that is, family. So the spiritual... These gifts are not meant to restrict us from serving the body. They're not meant to terminate on you. They're not meant to be these spectacles where you're doing cartwheels in the, down the aisle and all this stuff and everybody pointing at you. That's not the point, right? The, the spiritual gifts are for the common good of the church, right? And you want to, so I know some of y'all want to argue about cessationism and all this type of other stuff. That's great. That's not the point here. Listen, listen to me. Whatever gift you find, in the scriptures, I can guarantee you this. It is for the good of the church. If it's not for the good of the church, you ain't doing it right. All right? I know we can agree on that. Amen. Listen to me. You got another question. Right? Well, pastor, nobody told me how I'm supposed to serve or what I'm supposed to do. So again, how can you expect me to serve? Another great question, and I'm glad you asked. Listen, the first thing you can do to serve the body 
is gather together on the Lord's day as much as you can. Right? Hebrews 10.24 says this, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as a habit of some of us are doing, but encouraging one another. So some people use this verse to say, this is the reason why you got to come to church. That is true, but you have to make sure you understand what's the emphasis here. The emphasis is we need you here to help us. We need to be encouraged. We need to be stirred up to love one another. We need you, right? I'm not using this verse to beat you over the head with it. I'm using this verse as a cry for help. Do you understand? Your presence here on the Lord's day serves the body of Christ. Family, you in a war. We're in a war. And when we gather together to declare the glory of God, we're standing against rulers and authorities and cosmic powers and darkness and spiritual forces of evil that's trying to destroy your soul. And I need your help. Pastor Rolo needs your help. Emmy needs your help. And if we got a church full of members that don't prioritize gathering together on the Lord's Day, imagine what we're missing. Now, I've been around churches long enough to know that some of us are professionals that sit in the bar low. Okay? And so what I mean by gathering on the Lord's Day is this specifically. Physically being here, not the internet. That's not gathering. God blessed us with the internet, but you didn't gather with the church on the internet. Okay? It means actively listening to the sermon, not watching the game on your phone, not checking social media on your phone, but listening to the word of God. Actively and attentively. It means coming up, coming to the church early and introducing yourself to strangers before service begins. Everybody got a first time they've been to a church. It means welcoming first-time guests and answering any questions they might have. It means occasionally serving in the youth ministry so some of these ministry workers could come in here and hear the word of God preached to them. It means picking up trash off the floor when somebody else's kid destroys the place. It means helping, them, helping these young mothers with their kids and helping them clean up after it's time to leave. It means singing loudly and cheerfully. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. Now, listen to me. I talk to the pastors about this. When y'all sing from your, your ugly place, like really sing, okay, Y'all have no idea how that blesses us. That make us want to run through a wall for you. We want to fight and preach and pray for you like nobody's business. And, all, and just sing like you believe Jesus died for you. That blesses our soul. Sing. Just sing. Something else I'm going to ask you to do. And I know it's going to sound like blasphemy in a Baptist church. Okay? You don't got to always sit in the same seat. <laughs> Get up, move over there on this side of the church, and meet somebody you ain't never met before. You're not going to die. <laughs> don't just rush out of the door as soon as and make a beeline for your car after service is over. Ask somebody. Brother, sister, how can I pray for you? How can I help you? How can I encourage you to persevere to the end? How can I help you to put your remaining sin to death? Don't just leave. We need you. We need you. So I was explaining to my kids this morning. Little kids, listen to me right now. I was explaining to my kids this morning how I'm old. Okay, And so when I was a kid and I wanted my soul nourished, 
by watching cartoons. <laughs> I had, it, it took some work. I had to set my alarm clock because cartoon, we didn't have YouTube and Cartoon Network. All we had was Saturday morning cartoons, right? Some of y'all know what I'm talking about, right? And so it took some work and some planning and some effort. I had to set my alarm clock, had to get my big bowl of cereal. I had to, I had to like, like actually do something because I needed to watch Voltron, <laughs> right? I wasn't going to make it through school the next week without Voltron, okay? And so Voltron is a story about these five lions, the red lion, the black lion, the green, the yellow lion, who am I missing? The blue lion. And so Voltron would fight Zarkon, Zarkon, and his minions from the planet of doom, right? And they would fight, and then they would say, form the arms, form the legs, and all form the torso. Voltron unite, let's go, right? And they could have never defeated Zarkon unless they was together and united as Voltron. That's the church family. That's the church. That's why the devil ain't really concerned about burning this place to the ground. He's just trying to pick you off one by one. So we just experienced this a little bit, not because of the devil, but because God providentially took Pastor Rolo to another place, and we missed this brother mightily. Right? That's what you do every time you refuse to show up here. That's what you do every time you refuse to show up here. So the first thing you could do is be here physically, not on the internet. Internet church is not church. The second thing you could do is intentionally practice hospitality. Intentionally practice hospitality. Invite your brothers and sisters in the Lord into your house. Okay? Have a meal with them. Have some coffee with them. Have some water with them. Just spend time with them. Right? Encourage them in the Lord. Pray for them. Share their joys. Share their burdens. Ask one of these young married couples to take their kids and babysit them so they could go and cultivate uh, 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 their marriage together and grow in their love for the Lord for one another. Right? Your house was not given to you for you to turn it into a bunker for you to retreat into. Okay? It's supposed to be a way station for the Lord's soldiers. Okay? It's supposed to be a hospital for your wounded brothers and sisters in Christ. And your house is the place where we're supposed to go when we're lonely, when we're tired, when we hurt, and we need help. That's why God gave you that house. Now, if I was evil, I'd pray that he burn it down, but I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to pray that you use it for the way that he gave it to you for. Amen? The third thing you could do is make disciples. Make disciples. Family, if you're not discipling somebody, you're not obeying Christ. We are all under the authority of King Jesus. Amen? Where did that authority come from? It's Matthew 28, 19 through 20. The Bible says that he, that, uh, he died for us. He rose for us. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, and all authority under heaven and earth has been given to him. And he says, on the basis of that authority, go make disciples, right? Teaching them, go make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I commanded you. Amen? You can, and you need to serve one another on the basis of that authority, and the way you do that is by discipling one another. Speak the truth to love. Speak the truth in love to one another. Older women, older men, you should be discipling younger men and younger women. It's Titus 2. You should be doing that. You have, you have no reason why you shouldn't be doing that. Why are you hogging up all that wisdom? Why would you do that? What you gonna do with it? Right? 
If there's a new believer, if there's somebody in the church that you found out is a new believer who needs to be disciple, find out if, they, if there's somebody discipling them. Teach them how to read the Bible. Teach, y'all, people don't just come out the womb knowing how to pray. Teach them how to pray. Teach them how to read the Bible. Teach them how to obey Jesus. Invite single people into your house. Model Christian love and maturity for them. See how they suppose to parent. Teach them how. This is how you parent children. Okay? They don't know how to do that. That's why they peed on my couch. <laughs> right? They need to be taught how to parent children. They need to be taught how to love one another. Amen? And do that. Teach them how to love their spouses biblically. If you don't disciple one another, the church is going to suffer because the pastor simply cannot disciple all of y'all. Amen? And if you waiting for me to do it, it's a, I got a waiting list that's out of control. Right? So you have to disciple one another or the church is going to suffer. And every one of us has been given a gift. And every one of us has a valuable role to play in building up the body of Christ. And regardless of your position or your level or of, of authority, you have to obey this command. And your focus cannot be on personal gain or accolades or comfort, but rather on the one you serve. In humility, value others above yourself. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Right? So we must serve one another with whatever gift God has given and our ultimate goal in loving one another, being hospitable to one another, and serving one another is the glory of God. Amen? Amen? Look, look, at, look at, back at the verse again. 11 says this. Sorry, second half of verse 11. In order that everything, in order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The goal of everything we do, church family, is the glory of God. Amen? Everything you should you do as a Christian, whether you eat or drink, should be to the glory of God. The glory that goes to God said in this verse says it's through Jesus Christ. This means, and it's meant to remind us that whatever gift we have, whatever gift we exercise, whatever hospitality that we show, however we serve or however we experience this love, hospitality, and service, is grounded and mediated through the life death, burial, resurrection, ascension, outpouring of the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ. Amen? And this doxology here, if you look at it, it's not a wish and it's not a command. Look at it again. It says, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. He's not asking you to do nothing. You see that? He's not asking you to do nothing. He's just merely stating an unquestionable reality. All glory belongs to God. And it was fully and finally revealed through Jesus Christ. And that Christ's person and work is the foundation and the motivation upon which all Christians should love one another. All Christians should be hospitable to one another, and all Christians should serve one another. The glory belongs to God forever and ever and ever. Colossians chapter 1 says, All things were made through him, by him, and for him, so that he might be preeminent. Everything that has ever been made is for Christ and his glory. He should be first in rank, first in influence, and the center of everything that you do. Your love, your hospitality, and your service was meant to show the universe that God is glorious, that God is good, that God is wise, that God is merciful, that God is kind. 
That's why he gave you that house. That's why he gave you that wife. That's why he gave you those kids. That's why he gave you that money. That's why he gave you that mind to make money. That's why he gave you everything that you have. He gave you all of that so that you could declare God is good. Sermon in a sentence. As suffering people who have been saved, we must love one another earnestly. We must be hospitable to one another without grumbling. And we must serve one another for the glory of God. Amen, church? Let's pray. Lord God, we need your help to believe these things, to obey these things, oh Lord. God, we cannot do these things without you, Lord. We need the strength that you supply in order to do these things. God, turn our hearts and our affections evermore towards you for your glory. And by the aid of your spirit, help us, God. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.